the start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40, the big 4 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein, here with Nicholas Zart. As a quick reminder before we start, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. How go things, Nicholas? Well, hey, Matthew, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Episode 40, that's, that's pretty big. And it's been fun doing it so far. And I'm also excited that now we have listener comments coming in. And I'll, I'll let you talk about that. Sure, fantastic. I guess one nice thing about episode 40 is that for sure now our episode count is larger than my waist size. So (laughs) (laughs) going back to uh, your comment, yes, we do have some podcast reviews and we just like to highlight them as an indication of appreciation. We've got, and I believe this is Brooklyn underscore dad and Oliver underscore 76 who each gave us a five-star review on the US iTunes site. So thank you very much to both of you. Brooklyn Dad noted, I have been underwhelmed by the coverage of green energy issues by more mainstream sources, and I am really glad this podcast exists to help me learn about new issues slash opportunities in the clean energy field. So thank you, Brooklyn Dad. I have not been to New York in many a year, but I hear that Brooklyn is very nice now, so I hope that you got in before the gentrification happened. Meanwhile, Oliver76 added, love this podcast. The two presenters managed to wrap interesting news and topics into an easy to digest conversation. I am learning a lot every week. Keep up the good work. So thank you again, Oliver. And uh, an even bigger thank you to everyone else. It is really exciting to be able to chronicle this great transition we're undertaking. And it is so, so cool to hear that you guys are enjoying it too. Yeah, it really is good to hear. To have that feedback is always interesting because sometimes you you don't really know if you're reaching out, if you're communicating the information that's relevant. So that's always, always, always great to hear. But now I guess we can transition into a a fun little story I have, right? Absolutely. This is a great story. When I read it at first, I thought, wow, what a black eye for the West. One of my pet peeves is in the West, we tend to debate much more than, than act. And, you know, China has obviously a lot of problems. It has a lot of pollution problems. So when I read that the city of Shenzhen was transitioning all of its buses to electricity by the end of this year, 2017, I thought, wow, this is another excellent case of five years, maybe six years now, of what China can do in one city. So uh, if you don't know anything much about Shenzhen, it's actually a, a big city. What is it? About uh, 11 million people. It's right yeah, above. 11, 12, yeah. It's also geographically very interesting. It's right above Hong Kong and Macau. So it does you know, have access to a lot of international companies. And it also happens to be, drum roll, BYD's uh, headquarters. And if you don't know who BYD is, BYD stands for Build Your Dreams. And they've been making electric cars, electric vehicles, actually, since about 2003. And I test drove in 2008, 2009, their E6, which was a pretty big car with a big battery pack. Actually, it was, um, if I remember well, it was a 90 kilowatt hour pack. Yeah, it wasn't really prime time ready, but boy, when I jumped into that, I thought, wow, these guys are much further ahead than that. And not too long ago, I also wrote on Clean Technica about uh, my city here of Long Beach in California has adopted the uh, BYD electric buses. So we took a mate and ride, and it was actually amazing to be in that bus and not be able to hear the diesel engines that we have in all the other hybrid buses. All of this is all neat and dandy, but what was really more interesting about Shenzhen is that in about five to six years, they're 
able to completely switch 100% of their buses to electricity. Of course, 80% of them are going to be BYDs, but I think right now about five diesel buses are still lingering, but they'll be phased out within the next month and a half or so. So the gist of it is very simple. Right now, pretty much every city is looking into uh, some sort of um, hybridization of their buses. I'm lucky enough because my city five years ago, about five, yeah, five years ago, 10 years ago, started hybridizing all of their buses. And so I spoke with the fleet operators, I spoke with BYD, I spoke with the city of Long Beach, and all of them agreed with one thing, the buses cost less to operate within their lifespan than a diesel bus. That means maintenance is easy. And on top of it, BYD has, has a great trick up its sleeve. It does AC charging. So what it means is that any industrial outlet that you can find along the way of its route, it can plug in. It doesn't need any DC fast charger or anything like that. It can just plug in directly to the grid. And I think that's an amazing sleeve they have up their trick. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. And again, wrapping it back to um, how we in the West love to blah, 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 blah. These guys can do it in six years. So what are we doing here? Seriously? I guess one advantage that, that Shenzhen and that uh, Guangdong, the home province, uh, have, China and developing countries generally, is because they are developing economically so quickly, basically they're able to build a lot more infrastructure as opposed to just replacing existing infrastructure. If your population is going up dramatically, if the number of buses you need is increasing, then it makes sense that you're able to buy more and more instead of taking maybe 15 to 20 years to replace a bus fleet as you have in the West. Maybe they can do that in five to 10 years because they're buying more new buses every year. Since I am geographically semi-literate, I did do a bit of digging. So Shenzhen is in the Chinese province of Guangdong, which is the province right across from Hong Kong. Guangdong has a population of 100 million, so not quite Japan. Japan's 120 million. All those people are crammed into an area the size of Florida, if you're one of our European listeners, an area twice the size of Portugal. So you've got this wonderful density of people, a lot of great economic activity going on. And while there can be challenges integrating electric buses into regional grids, especially if you're a city in the middle of a farmland, I'll put a link in the show notes to what the Edmonton Transit Service here in Canada has discovered. Basically, if you need to increase your, your throughput of electricity, that can actually cost a heck of a lot of money. In Edmonton's case, it could be tens of millions of dollars, and that's just to upgrade the electric feed to their garages for like 40 or 100 buses. They have 900 buses. However, because you have 100 million people in an area the size of Florida, I'm pretty sure that it would be a lot easier for local utilities to manage this kind of upgrade because you'll have massive power lines crisscrossing everywhere. Edmonton, it's a few hours drive from the next major million person city. And so it's a lot harder to justify making this expense. Guangdong, I'm sure they have power lines accessible everywhere. So again, one of these unusual cases where developing countries can leapfrog perhaps some of the challenges that we uh, in the richer countries have given ourselves. That's a very good point. I think that, that China has a few things going for itself. First of all, it, it is really one of the heaviest polluters, if not the heaviest polluting company on the planet. So it really needs to do something about that. And the Chinese government is very well aware of that. So the push, the incentives to push what they call alternative energy vehicles is very strong and, and felt very well. So they are actually working with their companies to help them make electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. So that's something that they have that we don't really have here in the West or nearly as much, at least here in the far West, I should say. And you know who I'm talking about. Mm. 
Uh, <laughs> but it is, it's true that it is, it is really well. It's a, it's a very uh, centralized state where, where everybody lives more or less in the same place. So it's easier to rationalize that within that space. But it's also something that they're trying to do everywhere. And you're right. The big challenge is over there as well as over here is when it reaches suburbia, when it reaches the farmlands. How do you electrify that? But if you think about it, everything has to start first. Unfortunately or fortunately, where cities are, where you have the greatest population and conglomeration of people, and that's usually where it's the easiest to be done. It's sad to think that here in Los Angeles in the 1930s and early 40s, we had electric tramways going from Los Angeles all the way down to Huntington Beach, but that you know many car makers and petroleum companies didn't see that with a good eye, had to have removed in the end, and indeed built us some amazing roads. And, and you know that's the one thing I'll say about our highways over here, as congested as they are, Today in 2017, they were designed in the 40s. So, you know, at least that's one thing they kind of did well. Unfortunately, they removed those, those electric uh, mobility systems, and that's something we need to get back into quickly. That's right. Everything that chips away at fossil fuels dominance is generally a good thing, which is an excellent segue, if I may say so myself, to uh, <laughs> another Clean Technica article, this one by Steve Hanley, on a catalyst that's been developed uh, in Osaka University in Japan for creating the industrial chemical feedstock 2-butanol from biomass. And again, this is a case where, sure, we can try and replace the fossil sector on the fuel side, but another benefit that we can derive is by gradually using more and more biomass or carbon neutral sources, if you will, for our plastics, which are hydrocarbons, which are basically just extra long chain versions of the hydrocarbons, the fuels that we get from the ground. Now, one thing which should deserve a bit of caution with this announcement is that there's a lot of stuff in academia that works in the lab that doesn't always work in real life. Chemical engineering, we have this expression that scale up is where chemistry goes to die. And that is so <laughs> true. I had friends working on cleaning the oil sands and you can clean them every which way in the lab at nice room temperature. But if you go out into the real world where you can go from plus 40 to minus 40, rain, sun, sleet, partial ice cover, wildlife, all sorts of things. Well, real life, real life is difficult. Now, segueing from that, just wanted to note that there is actually a product, a commercial product available in Europe, brand of product, that uses some carbon-captured CO2 in the plastic. It's a polyurethane material. Polyurethane is used in like the soles of shoes or in mattresses. And BASF, the, the big materials giant, they spun out one of their materials divisions. It's now called Covestro. And they have a 5,000 ton per year polyol plant. Polyol is a precursor to polyurethane. And one-fifth of the weight of that polyol is actually from CO2 from an earlier... Um, combustion phase in the petrochemical complex. So this is very cool, even though I'm sure it's more expensive than a typical polyurethane, they have already lined up a commercial consumer product vendor who's fully willing to take this material, small amounts though it is, and I'm sure that a socially responsible company or one that wants to try to be socially responsible such as IKEA or other major users would be very interested in having this product, even if it's more expensive because it shows their willingness to try to be more about more than just profit. 
You know, that's actually, that's a very good point. And everything new is expensive. Everything that we can do in a lab is so much easier than in real life. But we got to start somewhere. Think about, you know, seat belts. Think about AC. Think, think about traction system. Those were mostly for, for racing at first. Then they were only for high-end cars. And eventually they trickle down. So I think also you make a good point that a lot of companies these days, big companies have a negative image at this moment. And they know that. They're trying to fight against it. And by adopting things like that, it's, it's certainly puts on a better face. So I can definitely see how that would excite a lot of new companies. I guess I should note not to get ourselves too optimistic. <laughs> the, the overall market for polyurethane is maybe 20 million tons. And this process of replacing one-fifth of the weight of the polyol with the CO2, I mean, maybe, maybe you could get like a million tons per year of CO2 sequestered into this plastic. And that's not even a drop in the bucket. That's like a molecule in the bucket, seeing as global carbon dioxide emissions are about 36 billion tons a year. And a lot of online resources will call this 10 billion tons of carbon, but they mean elemental carbon, not carbon in carbon dioxide. And the, the big promise here is that as with this possibility of making 2-butanol from biomass, as with uh, making some plastics using CO2, as in the case of uh, Covestro's product here, every time we can demonstrate in advance, it brings more people into the sector saying, hey, maybe we can incorporate these materials. You had found a link from Ford actually recently, uh, Nicholas, about um, them, I think, using uh, was soy-based foams. Yeah, so so one thing that, that a lot of people I realize don't really know about Ford is Ford is very active in that field. And instead of using, uh, well, agricultural waste, well, actually, in a strange way, it is a sort of agricultural waste, but not really a waste. They use soy to make foam. So a lot of the foam that you see in, uh, in Ford cars, whether it's car seats on the dash, is made using soy at the base. Now, I, I interviewed them, I think it was back in 2011, 2012, and I was amazed because it was mostly women engineers, women scientists working on that, PhDs and everything. And I had some of the best conversations with them. So, so Ford has found a way to do it. They've been doing it for a long time. Strangely enough, we don't really hear that much about it. And that's too bad because that's something I definitely do like about Ford. Yeah, I guess actually flipping that, maybe if Ford and maybe many other companies are doing this without publicizing it a lot, maybe that indicates that they know it's kind of something that they have to just do because they want to be responsible companies as opposed to, hey, let's beat our chest and possibly risk greenwashing because we're doing a couple of good things. So that'll be my um, Matthew's deliberate positive spin <laughs> on uh, this, the fact that Ford hasn't seemed to have gotten a lot of publicity or traction. If their name was Tesla, I'm sure they'd have that all over the front pages of the papers. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah. I think I think you make a good point there. I'm, I'm so tempted to put my little devil horns and everything and kind of measure that one. But I think, yeah, we'll We'll leave it at that. You're right. Sure, sure. Now, again, as we uh, make our effort, and this will be a very long, decades-long effort to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, that doesn't mean that countries in the Middle East are stuck because they have an insane, truly ludicrous, I'm not even sure what other words blow your mind into the next dimension, I think Elon Musk used, <laughs> amount of sun. And Clean Technica featured a story this past week where developers have completed a one gigawatt solar plant near an oil field in Oman. And Oman is uh, right by Saudi Arabia. It's actually next to Yemen, which is currently in a conflict with Saudi Arabia. And Oman has oil. This application of solar power will actually be used to try to bring more oil out of the ground. So it's not, not super ideal. However, the fact that we have 
have this resource could offer a good path for these Gulf states to make a healthy transition into a renewable economy, a renewable world, which is very promising. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing to see that these Saudi Peninsula countries are, are starting to get on board with that. I know a lot of them are very active, but we haven't heard that much about Oman. So when we saw that story, I thought that, that's a really good point. They're still producing a heck of a lot of petroleum and it would make sense that they have something that's even more abundant than the petroleum they have to dig for underneath. And that's the sunshine that just roasts their deserts all the time. So that's a really good thing. And I think we need to write more about that and show that there are good things happening out there. Yeah, I guess we should contextualize this by noting that if not for the solar power that they're using to, to heat water, to turn to steam, to extract oil, they probably would have burned natural gas. So I suppose we are still displacing some fossil fuel use. But still, yeah. I'm sure that our ideal would be to have uh, these Gulf countries have a way of capturing this energy and then perhaps shipping that energy through tankers around the world, much as they do with oil, but this time with a renewable energy source. That you know, but, it's, it's very difficult to do that with electricity because you've yeah. got to run power lines through unstable countries and so forth. But then that does give us the situation where are we at risk of replacing these oil barons or oil sheiks with solar sheiks? And we just want to make sure somehow that the residents and workers in these countries do benefit in terms of uh, living standards and various rights and so forth. You know, that, that it's funny because it reminds me of two things that I, I need to say. I used to shoot a lot of electric vehicle reviews right here in Long Beach. And if you know anything about Long Beach, it used to be a petroleum city. It still is to a certain point, but not as much, thankfully. And so we have a lot of these pumps pumping out the crude from the underground. So I would shoot a lot of these <laughs> videos of electric cars with those things running in the background. And one of the ending quotes I would always do is I go, notice those pumps behind? By the way, notice what they're using to pump the petroleum out of it? Electricity. Now, how ironic is that? So I thought that was always funny. Another story I did not too long ago was about a neat little organization around here. It's actually a global organization now called Adopt a Charger. And what it does is it, we really talked about one thing that we've all been worried about since for about a decade ago, and that's will utilities become the next uh, petroleum companies? And of course, you know, I mean, I, I, I haven't been very tendered with utilities in the past. And obviously, the grid is in a really poor shape and everything. And there's a lot of deferred maintenance, at least here in the US. One of the things that I get out of that conversation was that for the most part, utilities are actually very positive about going forward with renewable energy. And like a conversation I had 10 years ago with Southern California Edison, Ed Care, at the time he was working with them, was that, you know, for a company like Southern California Edison, they're more interested in energy management than energy creation, which makes sense. You know, it's cheaper to do that than to build another uh, power central. So one of the things that did come out through the conversation was the real problem is that the public utility commissions and what's happening there, unfortunately, and, and no, no surprise for most readers, I'm sure, is we have a lot of lobby and not necessarily lobby from who you would imagine petroleum companies. But actually, some of those startups that we used to love, some of these other charging net networks who are getting in there and saying, you know, careful, uh, we can't let residentials um, start putting too many uh, solar panels on their houses. So these guys are actually so slowing down the progress and they're doing it through the Public Utility Commission, which, of course, doesn't really do what it's supposed to do, which is to serve the public. So, so there's something we need to be careful. There's a, you know, there's a place right now where petroleum companies have yielded a lot of power and a lot of lobby power. And so, you know, utilities are actually sitting on a gold mine. So, but it seems so far the, the bottleneck is at the public utility commission. So there you go. 
Yeah, I guess another lesson to take from this is that technology can be easy, but business or, or negotiating these kinds of arrangements can get very difficult. It is relatively easy to do programming, but actually you know, getting people on side and winning confidence, winning uh, cooperation is a completely different and arguably more important skill set that we need to have. Another thing, too, is I think we, we sometimes we focus way too much on the technological aspect of everything that is happening. But the real fight, the real war, if you wish, is on the business model side. And companies that will make it in the long run are the companies that are not afraid of adopting a different business model. And unfortunately, there are far too few uh, uh, in the meantime right now. They will happen. They're starting to come out of the woodwork, but they're, they're the oddity for now. Okay, well, that is sadly the reality that we have to play with, but there's no reset button like there is in computer games. We just have to go with the flow and figure out how to get to the end point that we desire. I guess we'll call it a wrap for now. Thank you all for listening. We hope you had a safe commute and join us next week to get your electric fix. Thank you, everyone, and enjoy yourself. Drive safely, and we always look forward to your comments. Take care.